Hi listeners, you're about to hear the season finale of Ed Infinitum Season 2. I've loved every minute of recording the last 26 episodes of this show and engaging in conversations with listeners over email and chat. If you feel this podcast has given you something valuable, please do consider going to our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, clicking on support the show and making a donation, or even becoming a patron. Now, on with the season finale. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 14, School for Scandal, Part 3, The Inevitable Corruption. Welcome to the finale of Season 2 of Ed Infinitum, which is also the final chapter in our first-ever three-part episode, School for Scandal. In the first episode of this series, we looked at how, in the mid-2000s, a wave of education reformers took advantage of the new powers granted by the No Child Left Behind Act to attempt to reshape American public education. For the first time in history, teachers' pay, and even whether or not they got to keep their jobs, would be dependent in no small part on how well their students were learning, as measured in several ways, but chiefly as measured on statewide or nationwide standardized tests. In episode two, we looked at how this concept of value-added measurement used to assess teacher effectiveness sounded simple, but suffered from some serious statistical flaws. This meant that the performance numbers that both evaluators and the general public saw were dependent upon an incredibly tangled nest of mathematical tricks and convolutions to try and make up for the fact that, unlike in true scientific studies, there really wasn't a way you could get randomized samples or create control groups. Even ETS, which designs and administers the SAT, said these shortcomings rendered the idea of value-added measurement of a teacher's personal impact on the learning of his, her, or their students largely an illusion. But most people didn't understand those behind-the-scenes problems, or if they did, their voices were lost to the triumphant chorus of folks like Washington, D.C. Chancellor of Public Schools, Michelle Rhee, whom we got to meet in detail in Part 1. Rhee's system of tough love, firing hundreds of teachers and closing schools that weren't making the required gains in standardized test scores, while handing out a million and a half dollars in bonuses to teachers whose students' test scores improved, seemed to indeed be working, as the remaining schools and teachers started showing incredible double-digit percentage increases in student test scores. This, in turn, put incredible pressure on teachers and school leaders throughout the rest of the country to match those results, or pack their bags. In this, our final chapter of the story, we'll see how replicating those results was impossible without, sooner or later, resorting to replicating the actual secret to how D.C. schools got those results, i.e. through cheating. Across the country, principals and teachers started doing just that in order to save their jobs or save their schools from forced closure. The Education Policy Studies Laboratory at Arizona State University saw this coming in their 2005 publication with the Take No Prisoners title, The Inevitable Corruption of Indicators and Educators Through High Stakes Testing. The paper is essentially one long exegesis on something called Campbell's Law, formulated by former president of the American Psychological Association, Donald Campbell, way back in 1976, when he wrote that, quote, achievement tests may well be valuable indicators of general school achievement under conditions of normal teaching aimed at general competence. But when test scores become the goal of the teaching process, they both lose their value as indicators of educational status and distort the educational process in undesirable ways, unquote. Campbell was a genius, but not terribly concise, so let me try and sum it up with a little more pith. 
If you bake people's professional or even existential survival the stakes of a given data collection instrument, you really can't be surprised if they start cheating like hell on it. And cheat like hell they did. In 40 states across the nation, including, in no particular order, Georgia, Florida, Indiana, Nevada, Texas, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and even my dear old Massachusetts. When they started getting caught in the early 2010s, the dominoes started falling. And he started getting new stories popping up in new states every few weeks, some even involving arrests, trials, and jail sentences. Our three-parter started out with a focus on two places, Atlanta, Georgia, very briefly, and Washington, D.C. I chose Atlanta because the corruption there was most centralized and well-organized, and legal and criminal consequences there were the strongest. I chose D.C. because Michelle Rhee and her allies had already chosen to make it the epicenter of the value-added accountability craze, their apparent successes had in many ways served to justify the whole national prospect. Yet, from the very beginning, those successes were suspect, starting with Michelle Rhee herself. You may recall from the first part of our three-parter that Rhee was hired in 2007 by Washington, D.C.'s newly elected mayor, Adrian Fenty, in no small part based on her incredible record of boosting her own students' test scores during her three-year stint with Teach for America in Baltimore. Her resume said that 90% of her students, even those who had started as low as the 13th percentile, had, thanks to her effort, advanced their knowledge and understanding such that they scored the 90th percentile on their tests by the time they left her. Well, by the time the New York Times did a profile piece on Rhee four years later, she had walked back that claim to just say that an unspecified sum of her students reached the 90th percentile. Later, that same year, she had to again defend her results, this time to the Washington Post, who had looked at the official state testing records, which did not confirm Rhee's claims. Re explained away these discrepancies by essentially throwing her former school principal under the bus, saying the principal had told her those figures and she had, for some odd reason, never bothered to double check. The whole reason those newspapers were interviewing Re in 2011, a year after she had moved on from the DC Chancellor role, was that questions about the legitimacy of DC schools' test gains writ large had also come to light. See, parents had been seeing their children come home with these incredibly improved test scores but noticed that their kids still seemed to struggle an awful lot with the basics of reading, writing, and math. Several students eventually admitted that, since the standardized tests had no consequences for their own grades or graduation, many have just chosen to blow the test off, leaving their teachers panicked as to how to get their scores up. One principal reportedly begged his students to take the test seriously, and promised he would get a tattoo of their choosing if they scored well. They could choose the tattoo, but he would choose where it went. But some scattered parent and student testimonials weren't enough for a big-time newspaper like the New York Times or the Washington Post to send in their investigative hounds. No, the first investigative reporters into the breach came from that unlikely, easy airport reading publication we call USA Today, which, smelling a story, filed a Freedom of Information Act to obtain documents from a rumored internal investigation within the D.C. schools, beginning as early as 2008, Rhee's second year in office. Here's where a new character enters the scene. Deborah Gist, the D.C. school superintendent, a position that had formerly governed the D.C. schools before Mayor Fenty subordinated that role to the new position of chancellor. In some ways, Gist was cut from the same cloth as Rhee. A protege of billionaire philanthropist Eli Brode, Gist shared many of the same values and approaches as Rhee. And indeed, when Gist herself would later become commissioner of Rhode Island schools, she famously fired the entire staff of a low-performing elementary. But in other ways, Gist was quite different. While Rhee grew up comfortably middle-class and attended elite schools after the sixth grade, Gist had grown up as a working-class girl in Tulsa, Oklahoma, while Rhee had never seriously considered teaching until, apparently, her senior year of college when she saw a PBS special on Teach for America. 
Gist had known she'd wanted to be a teacher since eighth grade, had majored in education, and had had a much longer career than Rees' three years, before rising through the higher ranks of education administration. In contrast to the tough, no-nonsense, power-suit-wearing image Michelle Rhee projected, Gist was fond of sporting a white skunk stripe in her hair like Rogue from the X-Men, and had once made it into the Guinness Book of World Records for the most consecutive kisses received by one person in one minute. 140, if you're curious, all from different people, including several DC city councilmen and Jacques Cousteau's grandson, Philippe. I really could not make this stuff up. Also, Gist's husband's name literally is J-O-C-K, Jacques. Not a nickname. Anyway, so yes, when reports of mysterious test irregularities reached the superintendent's desk, Deborah Gist was not shy about looking into them. She sent Rhea a memo in November 2008, highlighting the results of a, quote, erasure analysis that she had asked CTB McGraw-Hill, the makers of the standardized tests they were using, to perform. This analysis looked at the rate at which students' answers were erased and changed correct choices on their Scantron sheets. Definitive proof here, listeners, that the machine really can pick up your erased answers no matter how well you try and rub them out. As thorough about oversight as she was about kissing, Gist also asked the local charter schools to perform their own independent analysis, and seven of them did. In order to be flagged as suspicious, a classroom would have to have had corrected its answers with a frequency four standard deviations higher than average. In other words, so much more often than the rest of the district that the odds were 30,000 times greater than random chance would lead you to expect. How many classrooms across the district met this threshold? 96 with suspiciously high erasures and corrections were flagged. One school had 80% of its classrooms flagged, another 85%. A classroom at a different school averaged 12.7 wrong-to-right erasures per student. The USA Today reporters consulted academics and statisticians across the country and determined that the odds are better for winning the Powerball Grand Prize than having that many erasures by chance. When Gist recommended a deeper investigation, however, Rhee and her administrative team pressured her to drop that recommendation. They then went ahead quietly hiring a private company the next year to perform a limited analysis. District leadership claimed the company found no evidence of foul play, but also refused to release the company's report, to the consternation of the now toothless but very publicly vocal school committee and local parents groups. Gist had urged investigations at individual schools. Re refused, because, in the words of her chief data officer, of the, quote, disruption and alarm an investigation would likely create at the schools, unquote. What was disrupted next was Gist's job. Gist eventually left the DC system, and whether that was entirely of her own choosing or not, it's unclear. But her successor quickly dropped the requests for investigations. However, parents and even some teachers were noticing all of these kids who switched schools suddenly having massive drops in their test scores just as quickly and without explanation as the massive increases the previous year. Later investigations revealed that Rhee had in fact been given memos from outside consultants regarding suspected test alterations, calling into question 191 teachers representing 70 schools. The report strongly suggested that the school principals, some of whom Rhee had hired, may have been responsible. Again, no action was taken during Rhee's tenure. Although no smoking guns had yet been made public at this point, dissatisfaction with Rhee was seen as a key element of Adrian Fenty's failure to win re-election after his first term bombing out in the primaries to another Democratic challenger, and not too long afterwards, Fenty issued an announcement that Rhee had resigned. It was October 2010, and by December, Rhee was on the Oprah Winfrey show announcing the launch of a new organization she'd started called Students First, which continued to advocate for high-stakes testing as a means for rewarding and punishing teachers, an end to teacher tenure, and an increase in charter school creation. 
All the while, in the background, USA Today's investigative reporters were at work, and when the paper's report finally broke a few months into the next year, Re, in a move that gave us a preview of future President Donald Trump's approach to the news media, gave a statement that USA Today was in league with, quote, enemies of school reform, unquote, and called the report, quote, an insult to the dedicated teachers and school children who worked hard to improve their academic achievement levels, unquote. Later in that week, though, Ree gave a quieter and more humble statement that, quote, some cheating may have occurred, unquote. To her credit, she told a Washington Post reporter that some of her comments about USA Today had been, in retrospect, stupid. Her word, not mine. Shortly, Ree's party line, delivered in an interview with PBS Frontline and echoed elsewhere, was that she had really wanted to investigate these irregularities, but red tape had gotten in the way. Ree's successor as chancellor spent 17 months investigating the testing irregularities across the district, for some odd reason only interviewed a handful of people from one single school, saying he was not interested in a, quote, fishing expedition, unquote. In the end, only three schools were declared to have taken part in pervasive cheating, and a handful of teachers and other school personnel were fired. I have not been able to get a firm number. Maybe someone else out there can help me. As far as I can tell, no one was indicted on any legal charges. So Re and, to a lesser extent, the Washington, D.C. schools had emerged pretty scot-free from the debacle, and she took credit proudly for 25 states that had adopted her perform-or-else approach. But in those 25 states, and more, cheating was still the only way to make those performance targets. And only a few months after Ree's sorry-not-sorry admission of cheating in D.C., in June 2011, the city of Atlanta, Georgia, became the next national focal point for a school test cheating scandal. Atlanta had been one of the top-performing districts in the outcomes-based climate, posting, in some cases, the highest score increases of any urban area, from 2002 to 2009, when Superintendent Beverly Hall, who had served during that whole time, was named Superintendent of the Year based largely upon these dramatic gains. Beverly Hall was Jamaican-American, held a doctoral degree in education, and had both taught at and led schools in Brooklyn and Newark, in some of the most disadvantaged districts in the country. Surely, if anyone knew how to improve the learning of students in a struggling, economically depressed district, it was her. But the same sort of testing irregularities that arose in D.C. started popping up through Atlanta as well. When the newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, started investigating these irregularities, unlike the case of D.C., Georgia's governor immediately got involved, and got the Attorney General to launch a formal investigation that interviewed more than 2,000 people, under oath because they could do that, and reviewed more than 800,000 documents. The resulting 813-page report concluded that 44 out of 56 schools had incidents of cheating, and 178 teachers and other school personnel were found responsible. 35 of these were criminally indicted, and all but 12 took plea deals. Those 12 went on to trial, brought up on racketeering charges. Yes, the same ones used to go after organized crime, because technically, the teachers in pursuit of bonuses were engaging in illegal activity for the purposes of financial gain. The trial began in 2014 and lasted eight months, becoming the longest criminal trial in Georgia's history. That's a record that, unlike the record for most kisses, you really don't want to brag about setting. Only one teacher was found not guilty on all charges, Five received jail sentences of five years, three had sentences of 20 years, and the rest got various fines and probations. The fact that none of the teachers served their full terms in jail doesn't detract from the fact that some spent as long as seven years behind bars for erasing bubbles on Scantron sheets. Superintendent Hall was indicted as well, 
as the report concluded that she either, quote, knew or should have known, unquote, about the cheating. She professed her innocence and died of breast cancer before her trial could be completed. So, yeah, wow, what a different outcome than what happened in D.C. And it doesn't escape my notice that the superintendent and most of the teachers here were black. It also doesn't escape my notice that almost nowhere else in the multiple cheating scandals that emerged over the course of the next few years did a lot of people even lose their jobs, let alone get indicted, let alone get convicted. Not even in such egregious cases as, say, Jefferson Elementary School in Florida, which was found to have an 80% rate of test alteration. Still today, only 20 states require schools to regularly screen test results. California flat out refused because they said it was too expensive. But in some sense, I kind of understand the hesitancy. If we all know on some level that teachers and school leaders are being punished if they fail to produce impossible results, then is it really fair to then turn around and punish them for doing the only thing that can produce those impossible results? On the other hand, maybe it would be better to do that than our current system of wrist slaps and looking the other way that enables such cheating to continue, which in turn enables outcomes-based school leaders like Michelle Ree to keep touting the success of their methods. And hey, let's stop demonizing her for a moment because the outcomes-based cause, it was George W. Bush's cause, it was John McCain's cause, it was Barack Obama's cause, Joe Biden's cause, even Donald Trump's cause. This belief sustains the top echelons of power in both political parties and remains a tenant of school and teacher evaluation in most states, even if the stakes aren't quite as high as, as during Rees' tenure in D.C. So it's no wonder that Attorney General Robert Wilson, one of the chief investigators in Atlanta, said in an interview about the D.C. schools, quote, nobody wants to know the truth, unquote. There are some interesting postscripts to this story. The Atlanta cheating scandal inspired at least one movie, Wrong Answer, and one musical, Ranked, made about the events. Deborah Gist, the D.C. superintendent who tried unsuccessfully to get Michelle Reed to take the cheating epidemic seriously, got to play Reed's role of tough accountability with teachers in Rhode Island. Remember, she fired the entire staff of one particular school there in an incident teachers' unions later dubbed the Central Falls Massacre, but later regretted her approach. In her doctoral dissertation, Gist acknowledged that the mass firings and no-mercy approach to teachers actually ruined any chance she had at developing effective working relationships with Rhode Island educators. The power to reward and punish, she learned, was insufficient to really transform education in the state. For that, she would need to actually work with, listen to, and collaborate with teachers, families, and students. Gist went on to become superintendent of the schools in her hometown of Tulsa, where she balked at how budget cuts had hobbled the ability of schools and teachers to do their jobs at all. When Tulsa teachers staged a walkout in 2018 in protest of these cuts, Gist joined them on their 110-mile march, yes, 110 miles, to Oklahoma City to protest. Gist went from considering teachers' unions as the problem in her early career to joining forces with them to advocate for fair and sufficient funding for schools, in the absence of which evaluating teachers' value-added impacts on student learning is even more unfair. As for Michelle Ree, who had undergone a divorce right before becoming D.C. school's chancellor, she went on to marry Kevin Johnson, mayor of Sacramento and former NBA player for the Phoenix Suns. He actually has a really good TED Talk that I'd recommend. Shortly after the 2016 election, Donald Trump and Mike Pence held a meeting with Ree, who ultimately declined what was rumored to be their offer to her of the position of U.S. Secretary of Education. She eventually stepped down as CEO of Students First, the organization that she created, and in an absolute act of sheer poetry, also served a term on the board of, of all companies, miracle Grow. In the aftermath, some states have indeed scaled back on value-added measurement, 
In Washington, D.C., value-added impacts dropped from 50% of a teacher's evaluation to 35%, and in New York it fell to 25%. One of Gish's last acts as Rhode Island Commissioner was to reduce the number of times per year teachers were evaluated in this matter in that state. In Massachusetts, every district was eventually allowed to choose their own way of defining value-added impact, which often boiled down to each school or even each teacher choosing their own way to prove value-added impact, rendering an already suspect statistical method pretty much entirely useless. But in some form or other, value-added measures still remain a part of nearly every state's teacher evaluation system, and some remain a large part of it. If the, quote, inevitable corruption theory is correct, then this means cheating on those tests will persist as well. Kevin Carey, director of the Education Policy Program at New America, yet another think tank of largely non-educators seeking to reform public education, exemplifies a kind of twisted logic that arose from this in some circles in a piece he wrote for the New Republic. I'll quote him in full. Quote, Cheating means that public schools finally care enough about student performance that some ethically challenged educators have chosen to cheat. This is far better than the alternative, where learning is so incidental and non-transparent that people of low character can't be bothered to lie about it. Blaming cheating on the test amounts to infantilizing teachers, moving teaching 180 degrees away from the kind of professionalization that teacher advocates often profess to support." End quote. Carrie goes on to say that schools just need to beef up test security so teachers learn that the only way they'll be able to succeed will be by honestly caring enough about kids to get them to learn, as measured by a method that has been established to be fictional. I'm sorry, I think I've lost the thread of this. So long as value-added measures remain gospel, a religious dogma that resists questioning despite all the evidence that points to its shaky foundations, then not only are teachers caught in an impossible catch-22, but the whole focus on teacher accountability becomes a giant distraction from actually focusing on what helps students learn. There's a conspiracy-minded wing of progressive education that posits this was the plan all along, to give public schools no way to succeed so they could be swept away and replaced with private, for-profit institutions. And while there may be some degree of truth to that, most outcomes-based proponents that I've met really honestly, earnestly believe that they're doing right by America's poorest, least advantaged students. Even the spotlight cast by a cheating scandal, they might argue, is at least a spotlight, something that reminds us that these kids are out there and we need to not be writing them off as hopeless or letting them drop off our radar entirely. I respect that kind of passionate dedication to social justice. It's at the core of my practice as well, and I'd hope at the core of every good teacher's practice. But so long as America refuses to widen the conversation about educational inequity to include economic and racial inequity, so long as we wear these horse blinders that ensure that all we focus on is teacher performance, well, that lets us toss aside all those thorny issues about distribution of wealth and equality of housing and health outcomes, and then we don't have to reach into our wallets, or worse, into our souls, as Americans. We can just dismiss any of those concerns as mere excuse-making and convince ourselves the only tools we need to improve the fate of our nation's most vulnerable children are a number two pencil and a scantron sheet. To close up this episode, and the season, I'll turn to the words of businessman and attorney Jamie Vollmer, someone who, like Deborah Gist, started off as a hard-nosed advocate of running schools with the tough accountability structures you find in the business world, and who ended up changing his tune when he realized just how complex a task it is to help all students learn. Vollmer subsequently went on the lecture circuit in the late 90s, describing his road to Damascus moment. I'll play you the climactic three and a half minutes of that moment right here, as Vollmer recounts a speech he made to a group of teachers in Texas. I start pouring it on. What's the matter with you people? 
you know, if I ran my business the way you people operate your schools, I wouldn't be in business very long. Teachers, y'all cloak yourselves in tenure. Administrators, they shield themselves behind this monopolistic bureaucracy. And they and the board, they use the rules and regulations that those hoodlums in Austin think up in the middle of the night. They use those rules and regulations as excuses for not pushing the schools into the 21st. Listen, in business, we invented total quality management. We understand continuous improvement, zero defects. If you run it like we run it in business, blah, 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 blah. 15 minutes pass, nobody's grading papers. All pens are down and they're glaring at me like this. And I forgot I promised to do a question and answer period, so I come back to the middle of the stage, and as soon as I get there, a woman's hand goes up. I looked at her. She appeared to be pleasant. She was nicely done, and I thought, oh, I'll start with her, she'll be polite. What I find out later, she's a 32-year veteran high school English teacher, been laying in the bushes for me for about an hour. <laughs> she starts out just as nice as you please. Mr. Palmer, we understand you make good ice cream. Well, I was insufferable in those days. Excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> Best ice cream in America. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, sir. Must be rich and smooth. 16% butter fat, low overrun, which is the amount of air you whip in to make ice cream cheap. Very low overrun. Oh, it, you're going to love it. Yes. Something tells me you must use nothing but grade A ingredients. Your nuts, your berries, your flavorings. Oh, whoa. At the Great Midwestern Ice Cream Company, it's nothing but AAA and a little smile shot across her face that I did not understand at the time. <laughs> yes, sir. Let me ask you a question, Mr. Vollmer. If you are walking through your factory one day and you come out onto the receiving dock, you know, where the trucks arrive, the shipments arrive, and you see a shipment, I don't know, a shipment of blueberries come in that is not up to your AAA specification, what do you do? And in the silence of that room, you could hear the trap snap. Well, I was dead meat, but I wasn't going to lie to the lady. I said, ma'am, I would send him back. Not a young woman. She sprang to her feet. She points her finger at me. She says, that's right. You would send him back. We can never send back the blueberries our suppliers send us. We take them big, small, rich, poor, hungry, abused, brilliant, homeless, with bad vision, poor hearing, sore teeth, brilliant, creative, curious, cautious, frightened, haven't slept well, ADHD, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, English is a second language. We take them all, Mr. Vollmer, and that's why it's not a business, it's school. Well. Yes, listeners, it's school. And we'll talk much more about school in the season to come. The show will be going on hiatus while I research and write some new episodes and I hope to have Season 3 begin in late August, when we'll return to our original bi-weekly schedule. And to all you teachers and students out there wondering what the fall and coronavirus will bring to school as we know it, well, you're not alone, but whatever it brings, we'll be covering it on Ed Infinitum. However, that's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next season. I hope you enjoyed Season 2 of Ed Infinitum. 
We cover topics from homeschooling to charter schools to coronavirus, First Amendment rights, racial justice and equity, and of course a couple of episodes about the hidden history of American public education. We had three interview shows as well, and I hope to have more of everything to bring you next season. But I really am going to need some support in order to make that happen, which means, sorry to go all NPR pledge drive on you, but I'm really going to need some folks like you to step up to the plate. So go to www.ed-infinitum.com, click support the show, and donate, or even become patrons. That way I can cover my hosting fees and justify to myself sinking my time and passion into this project, even when I have lots of more boring but paying work sitting on my table. That future is in your hands. But whatever you decide, thank you for listening. www.ed-infinitum.com is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.